Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of RSO Podcast. I'm going to read a hunting adventure story today. My wife paged through some old American Hunter magazines, and she came up with some of the pages, but not all of them. This is Adventure in Billy Basin, and we don't even have the opening page of text, just that title. So I went to the computer, and I was able to find the copy that I had in there from, gosh, when was that? 2002 it was published so I probably wrote it in 2001 and the hunt would have been probably a few years before that at any rate uh, as I recall this was a hunt up in British Columbia which is uh, probably the mountain goat capital of the world they really have a lot of mountain goats in that province and I have enjoyed several hunts up there for them it's sometimes called the poor man's sheep hunt because you're in similar habitat you're high up in the mountains but with mountain goats i have found that you're often in craggier country than you are for sheep sheep are more of a rolling grassland mountain animal rather than the steep rocky peaks they will of course run to the rocks when they are chased by by wolves and grizzlies it's a good escape cover for them speaking of wolves and grizzlies here comes my white-headed one come here covey say hi to everybody Stick your, can you stick your nose up a little higher? Come here. Come up here. <laughs> no. You always hear me talking up here when I do this and come up, don't you? And then you want to go for a walk. Can't do it right now. I've got to read this story about a billy goat, right? Why don't you go downstairs and wait for me, and we'll go for a hike later. Go on. Go downstairs. Good girl. Downstairs. <laughs> I swear she knows when the camera's on downstairs all the way no cheating <laughs> so it's pretty craggy rocky country where the goats hang out and they are abs- absolutely masters of the precipice they will get on some amazingly steep sidewalls and stick but they're not perfect you know the number one cause of mountain goat death is falling so well, it's not perfect up there but one way or another they manage to survive i guess the risk of falling is not as bad as the risk of being out in the open where they can get chased down by wolves and such. So they're hiding in some pretty rugged country, but boy, does it make for some dramatic country to hunt in. You just see mountains forever and you get storms washing through and snow squalls. And it is a classic North Country, North American adventure. If you get a chance, uh, definitely try for it. Mountain goat are not famous for massive horns or antlers or anything like that but they've got gorgeous shaggy coats on them and i have measured some of the hairs on mountain goats that are nine to ten inches long so they've got a really magnificent coat and of course they're white 
but they don't butt heads. This is really funny. A lot of people think that they bash heads. That's sheep, not goats. Mountain goats are really not even a goat. They're more closely related to chamois in the Alps of uh, Europe. So a pretty unusual animal. As I remember, the scientific name is Oriamna americanus, something like that. So they're sort of in a in a group all by themselves. <clears throat> At any rate, this is the adventure story, Adventure in Billy Basin by Ron Spomer. That's me. <laughs> An hour before dark, another snow squall came sweeping over the mountain crest. Within minutes, the two yellow billies high on the opposite peak disappeared. They disappeared the way Jackie Gleason used to disappear on our RCA TV in 1960. Now, and a little aside for folks who weren't around uh, watching TV in 1960, it, it was all coming through the air. We had an antenna, and we would get the signal, and then often something would happen with that signal, and it would fade out, and the screen would get snowy. So you'd still see the vague image behind it with a lot of snow and stuff on it if you didn't have a good signal. So that's the way these goats were looking when the snow came over. Back to the story. We'd been watching those uh, BNC contenders between snowstorms all day from a ridge that divided two tundra basins. We could have circled behind their mountain and shot one, after which it would have bounced a thousand feet. So we waited for them to come down. They didn't. But when the basin fell into shadow, four other did. I'm going for a closer look, Brian Martin announced. I'll signal you if one is worth shooting. Well, a half hour later, my lanky outfitter was bellying up behind his spotting scope 400 feet below, assessing those four goats as they fed into a narrow valley beneath the waterfall that poured from a glacial lake the color of green M&Ms. Then the wall of flakes obliterated them. Magnified eight times, wind-blown snowflakes looked like little darts. Those near Brian were rushing downhill, left to right. But when I focused my Leica closer, the white projectiles of snow switched direction. Halfway back in the lee of a protruding side ridge, they drove straight toward me. Closer yet, they ran uphill and right to left, while just behind me they fell like silent night. This radical mix of air currents was a warning. I should have heeded. Of course, by this time, five days into my hunt deep in the vast British Columbian Cassiar Mountains, I'd been ignoring warnings for months. Until July, I'd brushed off Brian's warning to get into backpacking shape. That left me just seven weeks to convert six months of office flab into mountain muscle. That's no easy task at age 48. Then I had to ignore aching knees and a pulled hamstring while escorting a 60-pound pack around my rural neighborhood. Cars slowed when I mowed the yard with a pack strapped on my back while I continued to ignore red flags while organizing my gear, leaving my pure water filter despite 25 years of wilderness experience. I should have known better. But at least I was smart enough to drive the 1,300 miles from Boise to the float plain base outside of Smithers, B.C. This would prove one of my more prescient decisions. Just reaching Bryant's camp in the Findlay River drainage was an adventure. A Cessna 185 hauled me 
and fellow hunter Denny Brundage of Oregon, two hours north through layer after layer of snow-capped tundra peaks before banking sharply and gliding onto Black Lake, where a beaver, its pilot Clarence, and our camp cook, 25-year-old Heather Steffi, waited. Well, the 185's not powerful enough to take off from where we have to go, Clarence explained as we transferred our gear. It's just around the corner, five-minute trip. And in our second airplane of the day, we roared off, the big de Havilland engine whooping like a helicopter through my foam earplugs. A half hour later, Clarence turned the plane through the last mountain pass and set it on the swift current of the Findlay River where 19-year-old guide Todd Kelly bobbed in an eddy in a flat-bottomed riverboat. Another transfer of gear, a short ride downstream, and Todd curved the boat into a tributary just above the start of a whitewater canyon. Here, 23-year-old wrangler Aaliyah Jacob caught the bow, and 25-year-old Kent Robertson led us on a mile walk to the cabins. Whew! Water's too low to get to the boat up here without waiting, Kent said. They'll bring your gear up. Well, that was day one. This would have been quite a trek had it ended there, but it didn't. The next morning we packed and saddled 14 horses for a four-hour ride to the base of an unnamed mountain in the Sifton Range. Here we set up a roomy tent camp just before the rain fell in preparation for our final assault. Denny spotted 19 goats on the mountain less than a mile away. There were fresh moose and bear droppings in the willows, purple fireweed blossoms, deep blue monkshood flowers, purple daisies, plenty of firewood, chairs and tables, and lots of hot food, pork chops, green beans. That was day two. A migraine hit me the next morning, so I stayed in camp while Brian and Kent led 64-year-old Denny up the mountain. This former Sears store manager had gone to college on a football scholarship and hadn't lost much muscle since. They left at 9 a.m. and returned in the rain at 5 a.m. with a 9-inch billy goat in their packs. They'd seen 40 goats. Denny shot his at 5 p.m. with a Browning A-bolt, 335 Winchester Magnum, and 200-grain ballistic tip bullets from 187 yards. Kent and Brian climbed two hours just to reach the carcass, and then they spent three and a half hours skinning it for a full body mount and then boning the meat. They started back at 10.30, plodding through snow and rain all night. That was day three. Brian slept until 11 a.m., reloaded his pack, and led us back up the mountain. Todd went along to help guide and pack. Aaliyah went along just because she wanted the experience of packing out a goat. That was okay with me. The three of them waited for me at the top of the mountain in a narrow gap through which the wind passed at, oh, 30 miles an hour or so. I was about 10 minutes behind the kids. Even though I carried 20 pounds less than I had while mowing my lawn, this hurt worse. The tundra slanted uphill more sharply than does my lawn. We huddled behind a downwind rock until the sweat dried. Then we pulled on jackets, neck gaiters, and gloves as snow began to fall. It felt like December, but below we could see summer green tundra, and farther out, dark green willows and nearly black spruce forests that flowed into the Rocky Mountain Trench, 
which divides that famous mountain range from the Cassiars rising up and behind us, clear to the Pacific mountain peaks. They were blanketing 360 degrees as far as we could see. Not a sound, but the wind. Brian and Todd walked around the mountain to peek through another gap while Aaliyah and I took pictures of that Arctic landscape. When we caught up with them, they were sizing up three billies through Brian's Nikon spotting scope at 60 power. These are the same three that ran off when Denny shot his last night, Brian said. Two are bigger than the one he shot. One might go 10 inches. Why didn't he shoot one of them? Oh, they were way down there, and, and his was right up here. Well, I had to admit that dropping 1,100 feet to shoot a goat and carrying it back seemed a steep price for an extra inch of inedible horn. But this wasn't your annual backyard whitetail hunt. We had plenty of time, an entire mountain range to ourselves, and just one tag. I'd better try to make it count. Let's check some more spots. Following Brian in single file, watching our footing in the snow-covered boulder field, we fetched up against one another like keystone cops. Back, 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 Brian hissed. There's a huge old billy. He pointed down a long ridge, and even with our naked eyes, we could see the yellow animal lying in its gravel bed far below. We crouched out of the wind, back in our first saddle, and then sized him up. Heavy black bases swept up and curved back like exclamation points, punctuating their own prominence. Problem was, the goat lay on a knife's edge ridge overlooking both basins. We couldn't move closer, so we waited. And while we did, yet another billy nearly walked into us. As he ran off, two more huge goats popped over a nearby mountain just long enough to convince Brian they might both be bigger than anything else we'd been looking at. Finally, well after sunset, our ridge sentry arose and walked off, freeing us to pick our way down a narrow chute to a thousand-foot boulder slide that ended at a tundra bench where we erected two small tents, fired up the MSR stove, and reconstituted our freeze-dried supper. We'd seen seven billies with at least nine-inch horns. That was day four. We climbed the ridge and found the yellow goat's bed right after breakfast. His big square tracks led down the ridge before disappearing in the rocks off the north side. Intermittent squalls continued all day as we still hunted and glassed. Then it blew a gale. We ate jerky and granola and dried fruit and nuts and candy bars. We covered up when it snowed. We opened up to soak up the sun when it didn't. Slowly, we located goats a nanny, and a kid in the bottom, a young Billy following them, then two boys, big boys, high on the opposite mountain. At 2 p.m., we found Old Yeller. Look at that yellow old goat back on those black edges, Brian said as he slid away from the spotting scope. That's got to be the same one. Well, the scope was shivering so hard in the wind I could barely make out the horns, but there was no mistaking that yellow dirty coat. Like the two high billies, old Yeller would be safe from molestation until he decided to drop to gentler terrain. We watched him stretch and snooze, one foreleg extended, then the other, until the sun slipped behind the mountain. Finally, he rose, stretched, urinated, and practically raced down to the tundra, 
joining three other billies that had slipped out of crevices and crannies, and they met below that waterfall. He's a dwarf, Brian said, when Todd, Aaliyah, and I finally crawled up beside him. The snow had quit, and Brian had studied all four goats for nearly a half hour while the rest of us dropped down to rejoin him. Look at how small his body is compared to the others. It makes his horns look bigger than they are. He'll still go over nine inches, but that billy up by the boulder field? He's older, and he's better. What do you think, Todd? Well, Todd studied each goat through the big scope. Eh, definitely the top one. Carries his weight farther up. Heavier bases? He'll score the best. Over 48, I'd guess. Yeah, but I think those two still up on the mountain are the best ones out there, Brian said. One will go over 10 inches. Yeah, but we're not up there, and they're not coming down here, I whispered as I bolted a cartridge into the chamber. I'm going to shoot this one. I knew that, given another day, perhaps two, we could probably bag one of those high goats. But I also knew that the weather could sock us in, and all those goats could disappear on a whim, or I could come down with giardiasis. Hey, I eventually did. <laughs> did that ever put a cramp in my activities? Besides, I had tags yet for caribou, moose, and black bear, and just five days remaining to hunt for those, well, it was time to strike. Hey, call my shots, I said, as I nestled behind my little rifle and settled its stubby forend stock into the tundra ridge. The crosshairs held steadily on the goat's shoulder. What do you put it at, 300 yards, maybe 325, I asked. Yeah, maybe 350, but a lot of that's downhill, Brian said. Well, according to my ballistic charts, my 140-grain bear claw bullet would drop about 7 inches at 300 yards on the level. Well, I'll hold high on the shoulder. The wind was hitting me in the face, so I discounted wind drift, forgetting about that recent flying snowflake warning where they were going in every direction. You hit him too far back. A liver shot, Todd reported as the wump of the impact sifted back on the wind. The goat began walking uphill. Hit him again. I held a foot in front of his brisket and fired. Behind his butt, the animal stopped. I put the crosshairs in front of his brisket again and dropped the third slug high on the shoulder. Only then did I notice a gully near that goat, an orthographic funnel that was pouring wind left to right, enough wind to blow my bullet at least a foot off course. The three remaining billies walked back up the mountain as we picked our way across the rock slide. The two big boys up high, they just lay there watching. It was a big goat, long and heavy with legs thick as a steer's. Its pelt was surprisingly luxurious for early September. By the time we had him caped, boned, and packed, it was 10 p.m. and full dark. Todd set the pace going out, stopping once to drink from an icy tundra rivulet. By 11.30, under a full moon peeking between clouds, we finally reached camp and that delicious freeze-dried food. End of Day 5 at Midnight A backpack hunt is not finished when you tag your game, nor when you reach spike camp and discover you have at least 100 pounds of meat and skin to add to the supplies you brought in. Brian, 29 years old at the time, with legs that stretched up to my waist, stuffed 90 pounds in his pack. Todd must have had another 70 or 80, and Aaliyah nearly that much, leaving me with perhaps 40. 
These kids were the toughest I'd ever seen. They could go all day in any kind of weather and never complain. The sun was shining, the snow melting, and the marmots whistling as we started back up that 1,100-foot mountain we dropped off of just two evenings earlier. It didn't look far to the top, but then it never does until you start climbing. I managed to stay within 100 yards of Aaliyah most of the way, ducking stones that she and Todd sent tumbling down the steep chute. But Brian, he started five minutes after I left camp, and within 10 minutes he passed me. Well, that was okay, because he's half-pack animal anyway. Besides, he enjoyed a 10-minute rest atop the mountain while waiting for me to catch up. The four of us spent nearly an hour on the crest, eating, drinking, joking, and admiring that view. But mostly just soaking it all in, loath to leave the heights that we'd achieved. Ahead lay a long hike back then packing up camp, riding to the base, then repacking for an 11-hour horse ride to a completely different area where we would hunt the mountain caribou and moose, see a grizzly, ride beside shimmering mountain lakes, catch a few trout, and get stranded by the horrifying events of September 11, 2001. It grounded even the float planes. On the 13th, we were finally able to fly back to Smithers, where my Subaru was the only transportation available for hauling three hunters back to the U.S., and none too soon because two weeks of drinking unfiltered water had finally caught up with me. Giardiasis, beaver fever. There's a lesson in all this, maybe several. First, don't drink the water. Second, beware of those tricky mountain winds. Third, don't hunt wilderness mountain goats by yourself. It's too much work and it's too dangerous. One twisted ankle and you're a statistic, if they ever find your bones. Even with four of us, Brian carried a satellite phone. Four, hunt the mountains while you're young, strong, and resilient. But if it's already too late for that, go anyway. Determination and dedication are more important than youth as Denny proved. Just work up to backpacking conditions slowly. Take your time once you're there. Most importantly, go. Go while there is still a mountain wilderness. Before heavy-handed vegetarians and gutless politicians outlaw all hunting and firearms. Go before you become too frail or disillusioned to try. Go before you no longer feel the lure of the wild and free country. Go before you fall prey to the easy, safe life of spectator sports. Go before some crazy zealot turns the world upside down. Whoa, that was a little prophetic. Because <laughs> right now, some crazy zealot is turning the world upside down. Just as some other crazy zealots tried to do on September 11th. Uh, what was that? September 21, 2001. My gosh, it's gotten... More than 20 years ago, folks, that the Twin Towers came down while I was up in the wilderness. That was a, a poor exclamation point to a glorious hunt. But I think I nailed it right in that last paragraph about going while you can. You know, regardless your age or your financial situation, obviously I couldn't go when I was a younger man, um, and that makes it tough. But I have known individuals, young folks, who are really eager to get some of this uh, adventure hunting done, who will take out loans or forego a new car 
or whatever it takes to make that hunt because you can always make up the money later. You can always buy a new car or truck later. You limp along with the old one you have, whatever it takes, but you just never know when hunting might get shut down. Um, over my lifetime, I have seen herds come and go. Uh, I can remember when caribou were pretty rare and it was quite an accomplishment to get up north and find a caribou. And then the population absolutely exploded and folks are going up to the northern Canada and you could get something like five tags for caribou, maybe three bulls and two cows or something. And there was just an, a population explosion. But then it crashed again. And it's just part of nature cycles, I think. Things come and go. So don't take anything for granted. Um, there are many states now, of course, that are trying to outlaw hunting. The anti-hunting zealots are constantly hammering away at that. And many places you've lost your rights to hunt certain species. So if you have a passion and a drive to hunt something like a mountain goat, by golly, do what you can to make that happen. Um, and the other thing, of course, is your own personal health. Plenty of people who had been once young and lively have gotten old and decrepit or they get in an accident or they break a bone or the, somehow something sets them back and they just never quite recover and they've lost that opportunity. So we all have to make our own decisions in life, but I tell you what, I've never regretted any of the wilderness hunts and adventures that I've made. So here, here's hoping you get to make some of your own, whether it's for, for elk or bears or mountain goats or something in Africa, whatever your heart's desire, I say go for it and more power to you. This is Ron Spomer. Hey, you can catch me on my other YouTube channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors, where we talk a lot about ballistics and cartridges and rifles and all that fun detailed stuff. We also have Ron Spomer Outdoors TV where we do some hunting videos and some more in-depth reviews of hand-loading and gunsmithing and the things we can't necessarily show on uh, public forums. So if you can join us there, we'd sure appreciate it, and we thanks for your support on these podcasts. I'm Ron Spomer, Unhonest and Shoot Straight. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.